0: Welcome to the Spin Cycle. I'm Maggie Sarachek and I'm Abby Greenberg. And together we are the Anxiety Sisters.
1: Hello Anxiety Sisters and welcome to our show. So many of you have written to us about your struggle to heal from trauma that we thought we should spend some time talking about this topic on the show. Today's guest is Stephanie Fu, a writer and radio producer, most recently for This American Life on NPR. Her work is aired on Snap Judgment, Reply All, 99% Invisible, and Radiolab. A noted speaker and instructor, she has taught at Columbia University and has spoken at venues from Sundance Film Festival to the Missouri Department of Mental Health. Her new book, which is absolutely fantastic, is What My Bones Know, a memoir about healing from complex trauma. And we are so happy Stephanie has agreed to join us to talk about some very difficult topics. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks so much for having me today. Before we start, we should say that we're going to be talking about what might be some very triggering subjects for some of our listeners. But instead of doing a traditional trigger warning, I thought that maybe I would read the author's note from the beginning of Stephanie's book, because it really is the warmest and kindest trigger warning I've ever heard. (laughs) So it says, for my fellow complex PTSD darlings, I know that trauma books can be triggering and painful to read. I've struggled through a number of them myself, but I felt that it was necessary for me to share my abusive childhood in order for the reader to understand where I'm coming from. I won't judge you if at any point you need to skip ahead a little bit. And I'd like to promise you this, even if it is a bit of a spoiler, this book has a happy ending. Was it triggering for you to write the book?
2: I mean, at at times, I think it was slightly triggering, but I think the important thing was I didn't really get to the hard work of writing the book until I was done with the majority of my healing process. So I uh, was diagnosed in the beginning of 2018 with complex PTSD. I immediately sort of broke down because of the diagnosis. I mean, I was already sort of going through a mental health crisis anyway, having This diagnosis made me feel really hopeless and freaked out, especially because I couldn't find any literature on it, specifically by people who actually had complex PTSD. There was some stuff that was written by scientists, analyzing it in very pathologizing kind of ways. But my job as a radio producer was I made stories and personal stories, and people would always reach out after hearing these stories and say, like, I feel seen, I feel acknowledged. I feel not alone because of the story that you made that was about, you know, military service members or Asian women or whatever it is. Um, and, and I just desperately needed that story for myself. And I, I, that wasn't in the world. And so I spent two years really diving. Down. I quit my job. I tried every form of therapy I could afford, (laughs) everything from EMDR to IFS to restorative yoga to mushrooms, you know, and during all of that, the only writing I was doing was kind of very stream of consciousness writing, just Mm -hmm. kind of diary entries about what I was experiencing, but not worrying if my writing was good or anything like that, just kind of just getting it all out. Like I'd go to a therapy session and then immediately after the therapy session, I'd go down to a cafe, open my laptop and just get out what just had happened during that therapy session. And so when it came to the actual writing part, it kind of just felt like work. It kind of, it felt like assembling all of these puzzle pieces that I had felt like I had really come to terms with. I think the hardest thing probably was writing about my childhood abuse Mm-hmm. Uh, which took quite a few tr- like probably 25 tries to to get right because my all of my editors kept saying I was super dissociated while writing it and instead of like trying to get around that dissoci- dissociation eventually you know in the book I write about like I recognize I'm dissociated while writing about this that's how it is that's how it's going to be yeah
0: Yeah. That's protective at times. You know,
2: we have so many things we want to
0: ask you. I'm like, we, we were like, we could talk to her for like 10 hours, but we (laughs) want to tell everyone, please get this book. It is so fantastic. So like us, you remember from when you were really young, having bouts of anxiety or feeling maybe dissociated. What is your earliest memory
2: of that? My earliest memory of being anxious. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Hard to say. But one of the early memories that I did write about in the book was actually my mom would force me to write journal entries when I was really young, like from the age of five or six onward. And reading them now, I'm astonished. I'm like, what six-year-old is this who is so eloquent and knows how to spell all of these words? (laughs) But at the time... You know, my my mom was very very strict. If I was to mess up like the difference between their possessive and their, as in they are, or something like that, I would I would get spanked for it. And so I do remember like writing these journal entries and then presenting them to her, and then just waiting alongside her in sort of terror of did I do a good enough job? Did I mess up anything? Did I spell anything wrong? I did my best, but it's probably not good enough. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that definitely has translated to my work today as well.
1: We're going to jump ahead for a minute before we go back and explore your story in some more detail. Uh, At around age 30, you were diagnosed with complex PTSD, Mm post-traumatic stress disorder. Could you explain to our audience what that means and how it's different from the regular PTSD that they're familiar with?
2: So we're familiar with the quote-unquote traditional PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder of let's say someone who um went to war, right? So with traditional PTSD, you can get it from a singular traumatic event. Say you were driving and you hit a bomb or something like that. You might feel anxious every time you are driving. You might feel anxious when you're in a desert situation. You might feel anxious when you're crossing the street and you see cars. But complex PTSD is kind of like if you hit a bomb every week for years, complex PTSD is when the trauma happens over and over and over again, over the course of many years. Someone can get complex PTSD from living in a war zone, from enduring domestic abuse. My complex PTSD comes from uh, child abuse, extreme child abuse and neglect.
1: Mm. Yeah. You write in your book, when you are traumatized that many times, the number of conscious and subconscious triggers bloats becomes infinite and inexplicable. If you are beaten for hundreds of mistakes, then every mistake becomes dangerous. If dozens of people let you down, all people become untrustworthy. The world itself becomes a threat.
2: Mm. Yeah, it's definitely, it becomes less situational and more pervasive, that fear.
1: Mm -hmm. Right.
2: And
0: it seems like the shame turns inward and the blame for the situation turns inward a lot.
2: Mm, Yeah, it really does turn inward um, because that's how you think. If you don't really have any control over a situation, but think bad things keep happening to you, you give yourself that control. Otherwise, how else do you survive? Just thinking like bad things are going to happen constantly, no matter what that Self-blame is a way of trying to give yourself some agency.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah, that that makes sense. And especially
0: when it's your parents, you know, or your primary caregivers, because you sort of don't want to be in a place as a child where you're thinking they they can't take care of me. Not only can't they take care of me, you know, they're going to hurt me. Mm -hmm. And so that threatens my survival, really. So the other choice is if I can do something different if I can be different, Mm -hmm. then I can sort of change the situation. That's exactly right. One of the parts of the book we've both found so powerful was when you were talking about something you called the dread. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I think the dread it speaks to that thing of, instead of being a situational fear, it's a pervasive fear. And Mm -hmm. so the dread would sort of pop up at random, seemingly random moments in my life where I would feel like I was doing something terribly wrong. Like I would need to fix something, something bad was going to happen. Or I had done something terrible, even though I wasn't quite sure what it was. Like after coming back from a dinner with friends, I would be so anxious. Like, did I see something wrong? Did I do something wrong? I think for me, the dread was very centered around other people. I think it often is with complex PTSD because complex PTSD is is more, more often than not trauma surrounding people. It's when people let you down, when people have hurt you, because when else are you going to just freakishly like get hit by so much trauma in such a short period of time, you know, usually it's people who have let you down. And so we might have some trouble in relationships, always thinking that we've let other people down, that we're doing something wrong, that we're going to be punished. So I wasn't really conscious of what the dread was initially. I've, I've become more attuned to that as time has gone on, but it's, it was just like a looming sense of dread.
1: We talk thing. to our community a lot about how important it is to describe how anxiety feels in our bodies, that that's really important to be able to recognize that. And you, I just want to quote again from the book, you wrote this so beautifully. You, you said that the dread was a tornado of bees that had been mm-hmm. thrashing in your lungs that you had to fight in order to exhale. And I just thought, wow, if that isn't, the best description of, of the worry cloud, what we call that dreading feeling of just doom is coming that that is the best physical description I've read.
2: And in your chest, right? It feels right. like it's yeah. in your chest a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and you have to fight to breathe. It's that exact feeling like there's these be and the buzzing, even the feeling of the buzzing it's happening. Right. <laughs> right. A lot of times people say to us, like my body feels electric. Is the mm. word, you know, that they use. And so that
0: was so apt. It is that buzzing feeling.
2: Well, it's very affirming that you say that, because you know, I wrote that oh. just about me. It's nice that oh. it, it's kind of comforting to know it happens to other people too. Oh my that gosh. buzzy, the bee feeling.
0: Oh, yeah. And I just say, like so much of what you wrote, you know, you're you're unique and such a talented writer, but so much of what you wrote you know, spoke to us both about our own struggles with various aspects of mental health, but also what we hear from people constantly, like so many pieces resonated. And, and um, you know, I was constantly just stopping and rereading sections because of that.
1: Yes. Thank you. When you received your diagnosis, you initially felt hopeless.
2: Because mm-hmm.
1: I think of the idea that CPTSD results in some sort of a, a toxic personality, or you yeah. worried that the trauma was so baked into your brain that mm-hmm. it somehow corrupted your whole personality. Can can you talk about this? Because a lot of our community members have shared similar worries, right? Especially with all the brain
0: research out there, kind of saying, "Oh, your brain is changed," you yeah. know, in childhood, or or if you're in, you know, prolonged stress, and and so yeah. it can't. I, I understood how it could feel discouraging. We'd love to hear your thoughts about that.
2: Well, I think one of the really problematic things, I think it's slightly better now, but in 2018, when when I was first diagnosed, just Googling complex PTSD, there were so many really pathologizing symptoms that were described on the internet, just like um, aggressive, but unable to tolerate aggression from others, burdensome, hard to take care of, emotionally unstable. You know, the way that I was described in in like the Wikipedia page, you know, for complex PTSD, that seemed to paint the picture of a terrible person. And there weren't any positive attributes. And eventually I've learned some positive attributes for people with complex PTSD, but they don't put that on there because it's all about that. A culture of diagnosis, right. Is all about fixing, like identifying all the problems within you and fixing them. But that's not very healthy for someone, especially who has like historical major issues with shame. Yes. <laughs> and you immediately tell them, like, well, all of the things that you've all, always suspected are wrong with you are scientifically validated as true. That's really problematic. And I just kept thinking of the, 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 saying hurt people hurt people Mm -hmm. like it's supposed to vindicate hurt people in some way but it doesn't really it just made me feel like I was doomed to like it was a minority report thing like Mm -hmm. I was doomed to some fate where I was going to hurt everyone in my path
1: we hear from so many anxiety sufferers and a lot of them who've suffered from trauma talk about use they use the word broken Mm-hmm. That's how they feel because that's how society treats them or makes them feel. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we we go around telling everyone who will listen, anxiety does not make you broken, it just makes you human. With all yeah, absolutely. The mess, with all the mess humanity entails. Yeah. Right. It's just part of that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And we we often talk about that, that whole fix it culture is so Mm -hmm. damaging to many of us with real mental health struggles, like this idea that do these three things and you can be fixed. And if you can't be fixed, you didn't do the three things right. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and all of it is so ridiculous. And Mm -hmm. so I, I related to that piece and also wanting to find that there's a real strength perspective here too. You know, we struggle with that even writing our book when we wrote about complex PTSD a little bit, because we wanted to kind of say, we understand child trauma. But we also want to say that it's not this all bad thing that, you know, there's also a strength there. And so you want to
2: acknowledge how painful it is because it is painful. Having complex PTSD is not fun, but like, I would say that it has given me attributes that have come in
1: handy sometimes. Oh, absolutely. As long as we're going to talk about superpowers yes. Let's, let's say this, like so many anxiety sufferers, you were incredibly high functioning in your professional life, right? It seems like the worse your anxiety got, the better you performed professionally, at least in the beginning. And as you wrote, you were able to bury your crazy Mm -hmm. when it came to your career. So even though you had this crippling anxiety, you became basically a superstar in the radio world. Can you, can you talk about that? How you were able to, to do so well in your career? And she did all my favorite shows. I just want people to know.
0: So it's like, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a junkie for a lot of the shows that Stephanie worked on. Yeah,
2: I was just actually going through some tweets because I was talking to my old boss, Glenn, about this. So I was going some, through some tweets from like 2010 when I first started at Snap Judgment. Um, and they're all like, basically like, I was having no other life besides working. It was like sleeping at the office tonight, ha ha. Uh, one of them was, I think it was on Mother's Day. And I was like, at the office on a Sunday, because I have no mother, mothers are not great for productivity. And I was like, that is deep on so many levels that I can't even begin to unpack. (laughs) You don't know, young Stephanie, what you're doing. You know, I was bred as as a young child, that success was going to be sort of the thing that made all of our trauma and immigration, all of that worth it. So that was a value that I was brought up with even as a young Asian woman growing up in San Jose, California, which is a very Asian immigrant community. I definitely think that that was a big part of my workaholism. I think also it's just like capitalism, just mm. understanding that, you know, this is the way to get respect. This is the way that if people value you and need you enough for your work, then they have to forgive your anxieties and your feelings where they don't see them as much Um, Because all they can see is this smart, powerful person doing Mm. incredible work. And so I think I was able to fool everyone around me, including myself, that I was totally healed and fine because I was so capable. And even now it's really flabbergasting to think about how much content I was producing,
1: Mm.
2: just working like 70, 80 hour weeks. You know, there's one point at which I went three weeks without a single day off.
1: Until 2018, right? Until 2018.
2: Well, I think I was starting, starting to get more balanced as, as time went on and I got older and more tired. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think 2018 was when I kind of was so burnt out that I was very unproductive. And I realized I just could not go on like this. And and you, and you, you actually
1: wondered if your work was not, in fact, your salvation, but rather a symptom of the illness. Like you you actually yeah. put that together. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I did write about that. I was like, I, after being diagnosed in particular, I was like, oh, this thing that I thought was hiding my mental illness this whole time was actually driving it forward more and more. And you had
0: a boss that was triggering you around that time. That was really, who was very critical. And that really, Sort of, it sounded like it really triggered your your CPTSD in a lot of ways.
2: Yeah, I think there were a lot of things going on. I think reporting the first year of Trump's presidency was really bad. I think Mm -hmm. reporting on a lot of like immigrant issues, people of color issues, like hate crime things as a woman of color at that time was really bad. And then just having, yeah, a boss who was very unsympathetic to that situation and was like quite abusive himself
1: the first thing you did when you got your diagnosis was you tried to find others in the same boat. You know, your first instinct was to try to reach out and connect. You were looking up celebrities with PTSD. How did that go?
2: It did not go well. Um, (laughs) at the time, I think there's a couple of celebrities who are kind of open about it now, like Fiona Mm -hmm. Apple. I wish I would have known that at the time. The only thing I could find was, I think it was Bette Midler said she had PTSD from forgetting her the lyrics in the middle of a performance. And I was like, this is not the same thing. (laughs) We are on different planes here. Me and Bette Midler. Um, I just, and I was on these message boards and I still belong to some of these message boards and they're rough. It was kind of people who were not at the end of their process, who were clearly just at the beginning of their Mm. process and who were freaking out just as much as I was. And I was like, I don't need to see this. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were, they were freaking out as much or more than I was being like, I don't know how to solve this. I'm trapped. I, I'm, I, am i am an addict. I, nobody loves me. And I was like, Oh no, is, is this all that we are? Are we just this narrow definition of people who are constantly afraid and freaking out and miserable? And I just wanted to see someone who was farther along in that healing process. Mm-hmm. And I told myself, you know, if I survive this damn thing, if I'm able to heal enough, I'm going to write that book because I don't want anybody to feel like I am feeling, which is totally isolated, alone, and hopeless.
1: Sounds so familiar, doesn't it, Matt <laughs> that's sort of the intro of our book. <laughs> when Mags yeah. and I met back in the 1980s and we were battling our anxiety disorders and depression, nobody talked about those things at all, much in the same way that CPTSD is still relatively new to most folks. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of people do not know what that is. And most people think PTSD just has to do with war. You know, it's it's amazing how little is known about it. Now, there's been some uh, with Bessel van der Kolk's book that that being so popular that has gotten uh, that has done something to educate people. But just like you've had that experience of being diagnosed with something that It's just not part of the zeitgeist, which is so
2: sexist in retrospect, because women are much more likely to have PTSD than men. And there's so many things that are very traumatic to women in a patriarchal society.
0: And also, as you brought up, the cultural trauma, the racism, all those Mm -hmm. different kinds of traumas that people are living with.
2: Yeah. And that we historically have always minimized and continue to minimize
1: Stephanie, I'm fascinated with neuroscience. Anybody who's listened to the show knows that that's my my big thing that I love. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the impact of childhood trauma on the brain.
2: Right. So, I'm not like a I am no expert. I did not go to school for neuroscience. So my understanding is probably slightly um so superficial, but I do know that childhood trauma does affect the brain's development and Actually, different forms of childhood trauma affect different parts of the brain. Also, depending on when you were traumatized as a child, that can also affect the amount of change that happens. For, let's say, people who were sexually assaulted, the uh, receptors in their brain that can register touch can often be underdeveloped or changed. Um, Same for children who underwent a lot of verbal abuse, the part of their brains that processes auditory feedback can be sort of shrunken. A lot of times our uh, amygdala can be overactive. Mm -hmm. Our default mode network can be overactive, Mm -hmm. uh, which amygdala is generally associated with uh, feeling fear. People with PTSD can often have sort of shrunken prefrontal cortices, And, you know, the prefrontal cortex is often associated with logic, reasoning, um, self-control. But, you know, what's really surprising in researching this book is I learned that people who have complex PTSD actually when in moments of immense stress, their prefrontal cortices are actually much more active than your average person without complex PTSD. They're hyperactive. And it's what it kind of means essentially is that we're really good at dissociating. So in moments when people would actually be having a panic response and freaking out, our prefrontal cortex goes hyper online and makes us super rational and calm in, in a crisis Mm -hmm. for years. We've, we've sort of described people with trauma as people with shrunken prefrontal cortices who are just simply less logical and simply less able to control their emotions. Whereas now we're questioning that, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. saying, huh, in some ways, this has been an evolutionary advantage depending on your situation. Absolutely.
1: Yeah.
2: And we've been using
1: the word dissociation a lot for Those of you who are not quite sure what that means, we, Mags and I often refer to it as floating Mm. because of the sensation (laughs) of kind of not being connected to your own body. Uh, For me, when I dissociate, I go above myself and I can kind of look down and see what's doing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's different for everybody, but uh, in the clinical literature, they often refer to it as depersonalization, sometimes derealization, but just to clarify that, because I know we've been using that term a bit.
2: Mm -hmm. What does it feel like to you? dissociation my well my therapist always says that I go flat Mm. and I'm just like "Uh uh-huh and and I think some sometimes people say that I seem like sort of almost bitchy when I dissociate because I just have a I I develop a resting bitch face (laughs) (laughs) and my voice just goes very monotone I just kind of become hyper focused in some ways and I don't I stop feeling feelings one of the many, many
1: wonderful things about your book is the excellent argument you make for not going it alone. And -hmm. that's our main point as well, that healing is not a solo project. So what do you recommend for CPTSD sufferers as first steps in the process? Maybe someone who's newly diagnosed.
2: First steps for me definitely would be like, get a therapist. You cannot do this on your own. And like try and find somebody who is who specializes in trauma or complex PTSD. Unfortunately, that's kind of harder than it sounds, but yes. I think like really dedicate your time and energy to it. I think the other thing that was really helpful was really trying to take some mindfulness classes mm-hmm. very early on. Restorative yoga was really helpful. Um, just finding a mindfulness practice. It doesn't need to be yoga. It doesn't need to be meditation. If meditation is not working for you, it doesn't need to be breathing. Some people really respond well to walking or going swimming in cold water. If there's something that can sort of get you in your body and out of your head and into the present, you want to shut off your default mode network, your DMN, Mm -hmm. which is this part in your brain that questions and ruminates and over analyzes everything. And truly the way to short circuit your DMN is to really be focusing with a lot of attention on what's happening in the present, just because the brain science is such that you can't do both at the same time. Focusing on something in the present gets your DMN offline. Yeah. You talked a
0: lot about grounding and how useful it was for you part of the grounding practice I developed was from this American life because mm. they did a story about someone with schizophrenia who found she was the person that like got the the whole toast thing going on in San Francisco. Oh yeah. 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 And yeah. do you remember that story? I do. And she um, would talk about eating coconut a lot when she was going through these really severe bouts, riding her bike and eating coconut. The mm. strong taste made sense to me immediately. That coconut yeah. taste.
2: Yeah, I read somewhere about eating wasabi. Yeah. Because when you when you eat wasabi, you can't think about anything else besides the fact that ah, your your sinus cavity is on fire. I think that you know a lot of people self-harm for this reason, is is they want that immediate physical sensation.
1: We give out these anxiety sisters mints that taste like altoids. So same idea. We're always telling people you don't
0: have to necessarily enjoy the taste, it has to be a strong enough taste that it gets
2: your full attention. Yeah, for sure.
1: Oh, Stephanie Fu, thank you so much for speaking with us so honestly about really difficult things. You're really helping others heal, not just from CPTSD, but also from anxiety in general. And your memoir is truly outstanding.
2: Thank you so much for saying that.
1: Once again, Stephanie's book is called What My Bones Know, a memoir about healing from complex trauma. And you can find it anywhere you buy books. We have a link to it, as well as some some more info about Stephanie in our show notes. Okay, it's announcement time. Our book, The Anxiety Sister Survival Guide, is available wherever you buy books. And also on audiobook. We read it ourselves. So if you like the podcast, that might be fun. Oh, and if you can, if you like our book, please leave us a review
0: wherever you buy books. Um, Whether that's Amazon or Barnes & Noble or... Wherever you buy books, so you can find us. Where can they find us, Abs? They can find us on Facebook, Instagram, our website, which is www.anxietysisters.com. And as always, if you have questions or compliments or an idea for a podcast, please, please get in touch with us at Abs and Mags at anxietysisters.com. Thank you so much for joining us, and remember
1: anxiety Anxiety sisters sisters don't go it alone alone. why were you lagging i wasn't
0: wait wait what about like no blame no shame here oh there's blame and shame baby
1: (laughs) (laughs) you've been listening to the spin cycle an anxiety sisters production copyright 2022 all rights reserved